Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Just Hands. I'm here at Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, on a little summer vacation of sorts. And we have a fantastic guest today, uh, Michael Lockie, a professional poker player and one of the co-hosts of the Crypto Basic podcast. We'll get into a main event hand and some talk about uh, cryptocurrencies and the podcast that he released with a couple of other poker players. But as always, thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Just Hands podcast. I'm here with poker pro and fellow podcaster, Michael Lockie. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So before we get into your life as a crypto podcaster, I hear you have a hand for me from a recent tournament. Yeah, I actually went down to Seminole Hard Rock for their, their yearly poker open in uh, South Florida. It's one of the bigger series in Florida, immediately following the World Series of Poker, so it tends to have pretty big overflow. Uh, the main event was a 5K, $3 million guarantee, and they ended up with like 900 players. So it always gets a pretty good turnout. They do a thing they call the Big Four, where they have a 5K on Friday, Saturday, and then a 2,600 on Sunday. And then the Monday, they run an 1,100 rebuy with like a 25K high roller. And then all four of those tournaments, the final tables combine on Tuesday and they play in like this kind of like esports kind of arena where there's like four final tables going on and they have commentary and a lot of stuff going on. It's a pretty cool production. The guys from uh, they do the Poker Night in America do the audio and video for it. It, it turns out to be a pretty good product. That's pretty um, awesome. in, the, in the 1100 rebuy on Monday, I, I ended up I redrew the final three tables, 27 left and uh, a really interesting hand came up. So just kind of give you the context. And I actually, I'm not sure if you're, you have a preference between cash and tournaments, but this was a hand that just, you know, we're talking about getting on the mic with you and this hand happened to me a few days ago. So I thought it was particularly interesting. So we're down to 27 players. Uh, We're in the, we're well in the money. There was around 600 players or so. And my redraw was like annoyingly tough for how soft the tournament was. Um, There were several very, very good players on my table. So we were playing blinds were 10K, 20K with a 20K button ante. And it was a nine-handed. Action folded to my button. Effective stacks. I start the hand with around 550K, which I believe average is around 650. So I start the hand 550K on the button. Marvin Rettenmeyer is the small blind. And he covers me slightly. I believe he had about 700K to start this hand. And the big blind is Maria Ho, who starts his hand with about 900K effective. So she covers both Marvin and I. Folds to my button, and I open 45K with uh, Ace Jack of Hearts. Marvin folds small blind, and Maria defends. Now, personal history with Maria, we've played, you know, in live poker, it's so hard to know what history really even means. We have roughly 15 hours on the felt together, random tournaments here and there. I don't even know that I have a strong opinion of her game one way or another. I mean, nothing disrespectful, but I just haven't witnessed enough to form a relevant opinion. Obviously, she's a very successful player, and as far as I can tell, a wonderful person. So, you know, I assume she's crushing these tournaments and playing very well, but I don't know what that means to her, whether she leans towards, you know, conservative and, you know, bluff catching or whether she, you know, plays more aggressive, etc. And oftentimes it's hard for me to determine where people are when I don't have a ton of history with them. So all that backstory being said, I don't know if you have any comments or questions at this point. I think the only thing worth pointing out is that if you guys have put in 15 hours together in various tournaments across the circuit, she's probably understands that you're professional. And I think that's Perhaps the most relevant thing in the hand, she doesn't think that you're just like a Florida, you know, weekend warrior. I definitely get the impression she thought I was a pro. I would assume that's about as far as it would be from her perspective. Cool. She elects to defend big blind, which I expect to do pretty often. The flop came 4-4-3, rainbow, and she elects to check. Now, this is a spot that I think... I can admit I autopilot a little too much, and I think it's just a personal character flaw. And I guess this is a spot that I probably haven't spent enough time discussing in my poker groups or with my you know professional friends. And and there, it's a tricky spot because I feel like I have the best hand in extremely high percentage of the time. But what does that mean? How does in practice what does that mean? You know, 
is this a hand that I should be c-betting for protection? Is this a hand that I should check back and just pot control with? And are there other options? You know, is betting larger in the equation? Does it accomplish things that I might not be considering? I think there's a lot to be said. So I guess just as an interesting discussion point, I think the flop is is worth discussing. Yeah, absolutely. I think in a lot of other circumstances, a lot of other seats at the table, I would strongly consider checking. Not only does this hand not benefit a ton from equity denial, well, the first thing to point out is that it's very hard to get better hands to fold. So if you're betting this hand, it's mainly for the purpose of equity denial and possibly to get a call by worse, since I think plenty of worse ace highs are likely to call. It also, betting, I think, helps you realize to a certain degree. That that all being said, if you were at a different seat at the table, like if you if you open from middle position, I would strongly suggest check, because I think that you have weak enough coverage of the nut commas in this hand that she can potentially try and exploit you through overbluffing. And at this point in the tournament, especially with this type of hand, I don't think that's something that we want to try and induce. Given that you open on the button and you should have a fair number of fours in your range, I think... All the queen four suited plus, I think all ace four offsuits, maybe king four offsuits, and then a lot of the suited connector fours, like seven four, six four, five four, I think are all very likely. Four three, you might pitch. Eight four, maybe you'd pitch. Does that sound it sounds right? really close. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'm thrilled to open seven four suited and into two very good pros, which I think six four I do open. Eight four, I'm probably pitching pretty consistently. And I, I don't think I'm excited enough to look at Jack 4 and open it, even suited. Queen 4, I'm probably going to say suited. I'm going to open about half of them. I mean, I am probably going to pitch a couple, but I, I don't think it's, it's exactly one way or another with that hand. Different stack sizes I would have different opinions on. But with this particular stack size in this tournament, yeah, I think you had a really good assessment there. Remind me again, do you have backdoor hearts? I do, which I, I definitely factored in. And and here's my perspective. It was it felt like I can definitely get called by some worse hands. It also ace jack is really high in my range. Obviously, it's it's a spot where I have really one of the a, a really good opening hand, but then like I just feel like I have the best hand so frequently that betting feels intuitive. But I don't like what am I trying to accomplish and and what sizing is the optimal sizing. Yeah, so I think if you're going to bet this hand, it's likely because you're betting range to a small sizing. And I think it's a reasonable play against the big blind who has a ton of, you know, a ton of her range is going to be undefendable here. And even if she pulls out an appropriate frequency and kind of steals the pot from you, not to say that you should necessarily bet full days jack here. We can get to that in a second. But with range, I think betting for a small sizing somewhere around a third pot maybe even a little tad lower. I think it makes reasonable sense as a way to begin to begin the hand with your range, or sorry, be, to proceed to the turn with your range. Not as you won't necessarily get to the turn, but at this decision point, proceeding with a small bet with your entire range, it seems like a fine play. I think as soon as you start to split and say, I want to have a range that checks back, choosing hands like ace jack, especially with a backdoor makes some sense. I think it's reasonably high up enough in your range that you could bet for value. But I think when you face a check on the turn, that might be a better time to start betting for value with this hand on a relatively safe card. Or potentially if you get a card that's better for your range, then, well, no. I was going to say you could turn this hand into a bluff, but I don't think that would be reasonable on the turn. It, at this point in the hand, if I do not have the best hand, I don't envision a lot of bluffing going on. Like, I just... I just don't know how many better hands I'm going to be able to get to fold by the river on this flop. Yeah, I think if you if you decided to give up with like a totally disconnected hand, like a jack-10 offsuit here, and the turn came like an ace, I think slotting some of those combos into a double-barreling range at that point makes sense. Yeah, I, those are definitely hands I would be double-barreling. Yeah, but the sort of... A similar situation would be if we turned to, we checked back and turned to king, and that's not a situation where I think it makes sense to turn your hand into a bluff, since the EV of checking is reasonably high. Anyway, I think this is really comes down to, is this a range play for you, betting small? And I think against 
from everything I've seen again from Maria, I don't think she's the type to necessarily try and exploit you by overbluffing in this spot. That's my hunch. Uh, and so I think betting with range is a fine play. And so if you bet small with this hand, I would definitely say it was a solid thing to do. And I probably wouldn't fold to a raise. So I, I like to bet uh, 30K mm-hmm. into 90 plus one into 120. So I ended up betting 25% pot. Yeah. Which I, in hindsight, probably do really close to 100. I mean, I can't, nothing intuitively comes to mind that I think it's an easy check back. I could make an argument maybe for checking back something like Ace Ace. But other than that, there's just not many hands that I'm ever feeling appropriate to check in this spot. Mm-hmm. So I bet 30K, which she likes to call, which I wasn't particularly surprised about. I thought it was going to be defended at a high frequency. And, I mean, probably defend maybe four times as frequently as check raise. And I'm not sure how often she, she's going to defend fairly often, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know what her particular folding range is in this flop because it's very player dependent. Yeah, I think her just flatting here bodes pretty well for your equity. She could definitely have the best hand, but I think she's incentivized to raise fours and some pairs that need protection at a fairly high frequency. And I think a lot of her better pairs, like if she had sevens or eights plus, I think she'd be at least somewhat tempted to three-bet preflop. People have varying strategies from the big blind. Some people actually defend a lot of those hands and just kind of flat almost everything. Uh, So you could run into those hands, but I think it's somewhat less likely given preflop, and I think on the flop, at least some of those pairs raise uh, for protection, especially over this sizing. So I think you have the best hand a lot here. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that I'm pretty confident going into the turn. And the turn ends up being an offsuit three, mm-hmm. which double pairs the board. So it's it's full rainbow board, four, four, three, three. I bet flop 30K, she calls. There's now 180K in the pot going into the turn. The turn double pairs the board, four, four, three, three, rainbow. And she leads 100K. Yeah, that's a good play. <laughs> <laughs> when she did it, I was like, damn, man, this is good. This made this hand really difficult. <laughs> so... so- yeah, here I am. I think there's a couple of ways you can approach this spot. I think in a slightly different setting. So you said that this is a fairly tough table. You have a tough left. So I think you're more incentivized to try and play a balance strategy rather than potentially sacrifice current EV for future EV. That being said, I don't think calling in this spot like prints money by any means. I think she. I'll be honest. I thought all three options were in play on the turn, and I kind of liked them all equally. I wouldn't really consider raising here. Talk me through that consideration. So, part of my thoughts are in this spot, and we can get into what my eventual decision is. My eventually, I, I decided not to raise, so I will just spoil that. The reason I considered it was a couple of factors. One, versus my other two options, folding it feels dirty. And calling just feels like I and you know we are 450 effective on the turn. You know, calling 100 here, I can't imagine range that she's making it 100 and not making a 350 more on the river. Mm. Like, what what hands can she possibly do that with now? So I can I can understand if you want to say call call to bluff catch. I can understand that argument, and it's definitely was in in the mix for sure. I you know if she has a hand like. Uh, seven six. You know, this is a super reasonable play with seven six. I think this is a super awesome line. Do I want her to get to the river with seven six? That's an interesting question. What, you know, is she going to fold those hands? Probably. Is am I gaining enough by doing that to justify the other options? I I agree, probably not. But I think there's some merit to it. Mm-hmm. Or, or possibly get her to fold other ace highs. That that seems like something that's pretty optimal or desirable. You know, but to me. I don't know what parts of her range she's making the decision with. And, and that's what makes live poker so much more difficult is because you just have to form an opinion. You just have to come up with the best of the limited information you have. You have to form the best opinion you can. Yeah. So the, I think basically if she's constructing in a balanced way, then it's very likely that your hand sort of falls directly into the 
bluff catcher camp, which is polarizing around your hand in a way such that like this is a zero EV decision and your river decision will be a zero EV decision if she polarizes again at a high frequency. And so if she takes that range and bets it twice, you would be making a mistake to call here because by virtue of having a zero EV decision on the river at 100% frequency, it means that this decision was minus EV because you lose this entire bet on the river. Only to gain more zero EV decisions. Well, it's impossible for... If this was a zero EV decision, it would mean that she had to give up at some frequency. If we don't think she's going to give up, then that means that either... Uh, I don't know. Well, like I agree with you completely with what you're saying, but I see plenty of reasonable pros just make the decision like, you know, this was my shot. He had a hand that could call the turn. You know, maybe I don't have a hand that can call the river. Because as you mentioned, I have a reasonable amount of threes and fours because I'm the button opener. And it's... It's a very complex decision. Yeah. So if she had size smaller, I would be, I would want to continue in this hand more. By the way, does this three bring in any sort of backdoor? No, no, no. Full rainbow. Full rainbow. Okay. The nice thing about ace jack specifically as a call is that you don't block any of the bluffs. You would have bet hands like ace deuce, ace five, a6, A7, even A8. And I think all of those are worse calls because you unblock bluffs. So I think there is a pretty good case for calling here. But I think if you think she's going to barrel at a really high frequency, then I would just fold. And if you think she has a fair amount of give-ups, then I think calling is probably best. And your confidence between... I didn't have an answer to that. I, I I considered both of those points strongly, and then I I don't think it's zero. I don't think it's zero percent give up, but I do think it's. But it. But what if she has sevens and she checks? Like that's pocket controlling. It's not giving up. Yeah. Well, then you're gonna check back and lose. But at least you're calling with a hand that has some equity. Right. The other the other aspect of this is that sometimes you improve and call and are behind. But if we assume that like when you hit a jack and you call, it's going to be. You know, I think an a ace or a EV. jack is probably the best hand, pretty high percentage. An ace is tough though, because <laughs> you would think that like she expects you to have an ace at high frequency, and most of her value range is going to be full houses here. I think it's a good spot to lead other pairs you arrive with, but as as we already said, I think she doesn't have that many pairs, since I think some of those are incentivized just to check raise the turn. And a lot of other, a lot of the other pairs are just like, pre-flop. yeah, they're going to three that preflop. So I think it's mostly, mostly boats and bluffs in this spot. So your hand improving isn't that important. In fact, the vulnerability to her draws hitting a pair. Well, let's take, let's take a hand, let's take a hand like sixes, for example. And there's, there's very few combos of these like middling pairs that are just kind of weird, not sure where you're at. Mm-hmm. And, and these are the ones that I find to be particularly interesting as leads. For a variety of reasons. And I don't know if, if this is flawed logic on my end, but it just seems like it's really going to be tough for any range to play super well against it that's not a full house. Yeah, for sure. I think if I arrived <clears throat> at this point with really any pair, honestly, I think Maria leading her whole range here is pretty reasonable. She just has an ad- advantage in terms of combinations of fours and threes. And if you're, you're betting range on flop, and she's already narrowed... A certain amount of her junk and so i think she just has clear the stronger range and so leading 100 percent, i think is a fine way to approach the situation especially since you're gonna since you have a weaker range you're just gonna check back at an extremely high frequency and so she allows you to realize a lot of your equity if she doesn't bet this size i think is a little bit more polarizing <clears throat> like i think if she's making this play with range it might make sense to bet smaller on the turn and then polarize on the river more so but i think what she's doing is pretty reasonable and it might be more effective because i think she doesn't necessarily honestly i think that there is a case for calling because of that if she expects that like you're just going to sort of chicken out and fold here at a really high frequency and that most of the hands you continue with here are planning to call twice then i think there's it's more likely that she's going to give up and if she wanted you to put in money to fold later she might have chosen a smaller sizing but i'm not trying to read too much into meta versus a you know a pro that we don't have 
a great deal of history on. So sure, I agree. Basically, I don't think there's likely to be a huge difference in expectation between calling and folding. I think this hand should be a call in theory because it unblocks bluffs. But I think if you feel like the field as a whole is soft, if you feel like people are going to be making ICM mistakes and you'll be able to ladder up more easily than you should be able to. So kind of interesting tidbit, and this is some, obviously I you know, consider ICM and laddering as very relevant to tournaments. When you go to 27 players, the next jump's not till 18. Oh, really? So it's, and that's pretty universal. It's, it's a, it's usually 19 through 27 pays flat. So I'm incentivized actually to, yeah, to maybe call twice yeah. here because like range versus range, I don't, you know, I don't know how many times she's just like floating flop and just deciding like, I can't have a hand that can call no matter what I think her hand is. So, you know, if I have a queen jack type hand and I have all of those, that whole range of just big cards that whiffed, she knows what her hand is. And, and she just, if she has a hand that can just look at me and say, I just don't think you can call. You just, it's so hard for you to have two hands that can call two more bets. And, but I think that's also a little bit me knowing the reality of the situation and, and, and projecting that into her thoughts, obviously. Yeah, I think she just have man. a very high bluff frequency <laughs> on the turn. And it's just a question of, like, does she continue that on the river? And what are you going to do on the river? I think given the pay structure, I think that's an excellent point. I'm surprised that it's flat from 27 to 18, but I guess it's a smaller field. I think I'm just more used to these... Uh, I'd say that's almost exclusive to all live tournaments. I, I There's yeah. very few. And if there are breakdowns, it'll be max three spots. But then right. yeah. the table before that, with the 28 to 36, that would almost certainly be flat too. So it's a matter of where do they start breaking it down. I, I find that 19 through 27 pretty universally in live tournaments all pays a flat amount. Got to make some more deep runs, man. Cool. So, yeah, I think that shifts me more towards the calling camps. I think this hand should be a call in theory. I think Maria could be over bluffing and I think there's enough of a chance that she gives up and we have some cards that we'll probably we'll call down on. So I like to call a hundred thousand. Yeah. All right. I like it. Cool. So uh river cards of five. Well, and inside of in, inside <laughs> of five seconds, she's, she's like, what do you got? Oh, I'm all in. I'm just like, mm. yeah, I'd, I'd pitch it. I like to fold. Yeah. Five makes a lot of bluffs get there, whether I like it or not. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's very difficult to know how many bluffs there are anyways, in my opinion. And uh, the best card for bluffs to now be beating me got there. And I I just elected to fold it, but it feels dirty. Yeah. I'm not sure. The thing is, I'm not sure that she would, uh, like turn a five into a bluff. I think that'd be a bit of a sure. strange play. But now, yeah. like, 7-6, ace-deuce. Yeah, um, so much of her range. Not only fives. Yeah, I mean, a ton of her range, one got there. And a lot of the rest of her range that could have bluffed the river now no longer can bluff the river. And, and would just check anyways. Yeah. And I would give up and lose at showdown. But the fact that I think there's bluffs that can now value bet is the, the major eye roll part to me. Yeah. I think she probably just knew you were going to fold, and that's part of why the sure. And, and I think that's a very fair. And, no, no, not and new. one that carried me quite a bit in live poker is literally just looking at someone having a really good idea of what their range should be and just telling them good luck and can they hold on? You know, not that I think that's exactly what she was trying to accomplish here, but it's a very reasonable line of thought. Well, what I was saying is that I think that part of the reason that maybe she had she shoved in the manner that she shoved is because she understood that you were probably going to fold. And maybe just let her guard down a little bit. I think she probably had a strong hand. Maybe not. Maybe she showed you a bluff. Uh, we just both mucked face down. I mean, yeah, it wasn't. That's what I would. That's no what I guess. commentary, really. Just kind of. I did think about it for a long time. I would not be at all surprised if she just like had a hand like ten nine off and just told me that, or just believed that it's almost impossible for me to be able to just like call two more bets and, you know, I don't know. The thing is, it's it's kind of hard for that hand to call the flop. I agree, it's, but if if you're just playing to like lead some stuff, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't make these plays, and, and I, I don't know that at all she's capable or, or even willing to do something that could be probably largely bad like that. But if I've seen plenty of people float random, even good players float, float plenty of random garbage out of position against me, that makes it really tough to play against on turns and rivers. Yeah, I think what I think floating like some some other random garbage like queen ten or something. There's a little bit more merit. Ten nine is like one of the. The only reason I had that reaction is because I think that's like a, one of the exact hands that she's pretty likely to fold your flop bet, which is it's nice when she folds that. It's it's interesting because uh, we could have an entire separate conversation of what equals a good floating hand. My intuitive reaction was to choose that hand so that it unblocked more of the jacks plus and like opens up hands that I am opening 100 percent of the time for sure. That you know could be C betting the flop hundred percent. And it is like, if, if I have the queen jack, then there's nothing that I can do about it. Kind of thing. The thing is she has to be, I think you're likely to barrel more of your range on like a queen or a 10 plus. And so like having coverage on those hands is maybe more important. It's an interesting question. I think 10, nine with a backdoor makes more sense. Uh, since you really sure. you can't fold too much to those, it was a stretch. Yeah. It, it, the, the whole hypothetical. I know you were just you were right? just pulling a hand out, yeah, just throwing something out there. I know, like it wasn't that well thought out that like you actually think that she had exactly ten nine offsuit. Or, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I actually, I you know, I like your line a lot. It's probably what I would have done. Yeah, I think there's a case, and I I, re- I actually like her play a lot too. Yeah, like not even knowing her hand, I'm just like, damn, well played. I don't, I don't know. It's, and it's also a spot where, it, you know, somebody defends out of the blind. Like, let's just say she has a three or a four mm-hmm. and she gets to the turn. It just seems super reasonable for her to expect me to check back a huge part of my range. So her value hands are incentivized to lead too, which is a kind of a rare situation in my opinion. Yeah. And it's also reasonable to expect that a lot of the field is going to have their entire opening range at this point in the hand. It's a part of why it can be better to split range on the flop, but I think splitting well is difficult. And I think it's, most people in the field don't play extremely well against the quarter pot bet. And as long as we're defending fairly appropriately, then we limit the downside on these sorts of turns where now we just have way too much range and she can just turn around as, and come out as the aggressor. And a lot of people miss this spot. I agree. And yeah. even when she let it, I thought to myself, I should be doing this more because like it's re- whether whether her hand was a draw, total garbage, a, a, a hand that she was chopping with or a full house. It literally didn't matter. I didn't know how to play against it. Right. And isn't that what you want? Anytime you put chips out there for people to just to like have no idea what to do. That's kind of my goal. Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely the goal. And these wide range spots are like a perfect time to do it since so much of the range lacks like direction. You know, on like a four or a Badugi board, it's really hard to even like randomize. And so I think people tend to like, since there's nothing to help you randomize, you sort of are left on an island to potentially make huge mistakes. And that's, that's said that even players who are thinking very well about the game are likely to make errors in this spot facing the lead. I would be lying if I said I didn't make a ton of errors in spots like this, that I, that I could pick out five of them, and I and I would probably be able to assess that one of the five is an error. But that's what makes the game so complicated. You know, with this other podcasting adventure I've gone down, my ability to study the game or my willingness to find time to study the game has gone down. While that has that has taken away some confidence, however, the break has also been totally rejuvenating. It's totally refilled my passion for poker, and I actually feel like I'm at a point where my game has never been better at the same time. That's, you know, that's fantastic. Walk us through uh, that journey, since I think maybe some people don't know what you're up to with Crypto Basic and where you're coming from in terms of sure. your life as a professional. Yeah, so my life as a professional, um, I played full-time for three years. Um, prior to that, I, I was nine years as a dealer. So I, I played part-time, played a lot on Stars and Full Tilt at the time and worked with some, some two-plus tours and you know worked with a lot of the well-known individuals. Had some 
you know, really made some really good friends over the years. And, you know, I ended up having a child at 24. So I'm 32 now. She just turned eight. It really changed my perspective on a lot of things. It, it kept me at the casino working a lot longer than a lot of professionals. I'll never forget the, the day that I had my, my biggest career score. I just went into work the next day and it was at, it was at the neighboring casino and everybody looked at me and was just like, why are you here? And I mean, there was a ton of reasons why I was there, but people just couldn't grasp how long I waited to become a pro. And I, and there's a ton of reasons why. I mean, the, the unwillingness to fail is a huge part of it. I, I lacked the ability to fail. And, and that's something that you learn a lot with time, in my opinion, that failure is one of the most important lessons you can learn. So while I did go on a, a three-year break, it, I really determined that my heart wasn't in it. And, you know, I was now grinding like my 10th through 12th year at least part-time. And then now I tried to up the volume to probably triple what I was playing instantly burned out and like was playing poorly for a long time and really not willing to admit it to myself. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. So um, I decided to get a day job. I, tr I tried working at a life insurance agency. Uh, I met a guy playing poker that owned a business and, you know, I decided to give it a shot. I just, I just wanted to see what other career paths look like. I ultimately wasted a ton of time with that. And then this, this kind of podcast venture started to open up. And, you know, this is something that I've been talking to my, my two co-hosts for a very long time about because we learned about crypto at, at fairly early, but we didn't really pull the trigger for a while. I remember both of my hosts I've known for over 10 years and we have really good rapport on the mic. So that's something that we have as a strong advantage. We met playing poker. Um, all three of us worked at a casino together in 2007. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and uh, we kind of went our different ways, but we've always kept in touch. We have a very rock, paper, scissors personality, and it works well for us. So that was a very interesting place to go. It's it's such a unique field. It's The future of crypto is, is so difficult to even track. It's so difficult to understand where it's going to go. You know, what is Bitcoin going to do long term? What is it going to do short term? Like Those are questions we don't try to answer. Our show is meant to be... If you're interested in crypto, we're going to explore our journey out loud with you. And when we started back in January, we knew enough to have conversations, but all three of us would admit we didn't know anything. And we just approached it like skeptics. So we just started getting on the mic, picking a topic and just talking. What are the pros and cons? Every, every coin has a big con to it. Every single one. All my favorite ones, they have cons. If you're unwilling to see the weaknesses in your project, then you're not looking at it hard enough. So we spent, you know, eight months now uh, releasing three episodes a week. And it's become really fun to just get together with two of my best friends, hit record, and just see what comes out. Do you use Discord at all, by any chance? We don't, but... I, uh, the reason I ask is that we've quickly learned that that was one of the biggest assets that we added to our platform. The ability to give people a place to ask all sorts of different styles of questions, a place for them to reference. Like we have a, a random example. We don't hardly, hardly ever talk about the mining of Bitcoin and or the, the, the proof of work that goes on behind the scenes because it's kind of above our, our pay grade. We don't know enough about computer parts to, you know, generate enough you know, computations to, to hack uh, SHA-256. Like, those things are not, you know, what we focus on. But we have a mining section in our Discord. And there are people that are way smarter than us that listen to our podcast that come in and have really intelligent conversations with, with each other. And we're just kind of flies on the wall sometimes. So we what we like to do is just, this is our journey. We're a couple poker players that are really interested in what this is going to become. So we're going to learn about it. And the product so far, I think, has turned out really well. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes sense, obviously, that you would have started this with two other poker players. But I'm curious, there are some, I think, obvious connections between poker and crypto. But I'm sure that you are even more hyperly aware of them than I am. So I wonder why you think that there's such a symbiosis between the poker playing community and the crypto community. <clears throat> Number one, I would say, is the desired future that both could provide if handled properly. What I mean by that is, you know, I don't know your story hardly at all, but what? why did you get into poker? I just started playing with friends when I was young, and I'm a competitive person. 
and we just sort of built each you other probably up. started beating up on all your high school friends to a point that it became laughable and then you moved on one step further and then you know you probably started playing online and then you're like wow this could be a real thing roughly yeah <laughs> yeah and, and we a lot of us have that story i had the yeah, same story you know I, I remember playing my high school buddies in, in 11th grade we would play 10 cent 20 cent with a 20 dollar buy-in and i was literally making like 80 bucks a week at 11 years old or in 11th grade like you know, yeah. it didn't take me long to figure out I was really far ahead of these people intuitively, even though I, I even then didn't think I really knew what was going on. So, but what crypto is going to provide, it's going to, it's going to make everything open sourced. And we have, we actually recorded an episode that we called uh, use cases. And what I like about this episode is it, it's literally just going to talk about all the little nuanced things that that crypto is going to change in the world. And, you know, when that happens, everyone's going to be held accountable for what they claim. Politicians are going to be held accountable, fundraising, public economies, charities. Like if, if you give a charity Bitcoin, I can just go find the transaction number and go on a, on a block explorer and, and see how many, how much Bitcoin is still in that wallet. And if it went somewhere, if they tell me, well, we spent, x bitcoin on this well i mean i would have the ability to just go see where that big what transaction that bitcoin was sent to if it's being sent the whole thing gets sent to one person well yeah that might be a huge red flag if it's if it's saying like hey we're paying you know this charity this amount for this reason and i can go like oh hey there it is i can see it like that ability for trust is something that i find fascinating i think you could craft a sort of darker connection between those two. Oh, absolutely. And I would, I would sort of reject that to a degree. I think that there is definitely a community of poker players and crypto investors. Or there's a part of that overlap that is looking for a quick buck. But I think anyone that has been in poker for long enough understands that poker is not a quick buck. It's a buck that comes with a lot of freedom but it's not easy. A lot of responsibility. Yeah, it's it's really not an easy career. It's not a way to get rich quick by any means. Okay, I'm glad you said that because if anything that I said at all suggested that that's what I believe crypto is, then no, I yeah, strongly you disagree. You have not. Yeah, it is 100. percent We want to take the guy that wants to make a quick buck and explain to him why he might make a couple bucks long term. Yeah, I mean, I think you could even you could even be more bullish on the field than that, and still say, like, this is why it's not enough just to think that you're going to put your money into some sort of project and make a quick buck. It's potentially much more long term than that, and it's a field with a lot of landmines. What you said about every project has downside. I mean, that's absolutely true. What maybe is even an even more extreme way of saying that is that many projects have much more downside than upside. Absolutely. Uh, and so just because something is listed in point market cap doesn't mean that it's a project worth investing in. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I'll, I'll give you a great example. We did roughly the top 25 coins at some point. Obviously, that number changes in coin yeah. market cap. But we used that number as kind of like where we wanted to get through. Originally, we wanted to do the top 100, but we're getting to the point where now when we cover a project – most of them don't have working products. So we can't, one of our questions we like to ask is, well, is there main net live? You know, yeah. how are they differentiating themselves? A lot of companies are ERC 20 tokens and then they're waiting until their main net gets released like a year from now. That doesn't excite me. It's just a lot of things that like, it becomes significantly harder to grade a six month old project than a two year project. And when you're guessing a lot, you know, you have to form more opinions, which people don't want you to form. We do form opinions, but we offer, we try our best to say, here's what we found. Here's the research. Here's what my experience was with this. Take it or leave it. And, you know, we can't necessarily do that when a coin has been out of, out of ICO for six months. And there's just, I don't know, it's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. It's interesting trying to talk about some of this stuff in front of an audience that I'm sure has highly variable knowledge about the field. I think some people... Highly variable is a great way to put it. 
some people are probably reading between the lines of a lot of what we're saying, sort of skirting around, but not necessarily getting into the meat of, because this is not necessarily the place, nor do we have enough time. But yeah, I've listened to a good amount of your podcast at this point, and I like how you described it as this is someone kind of hopping on your shoulder for the journey of you guys learning about this field, because there is a lot to learn. It hasn't, if you didn't get in four years ago, there's a lot of catching up to do. And luckily with a podcast, that means there's an archive of catching up to do. And yeah, you just, you guys do a nice job of, I think, curating the right type of content and guiding people through. And so I appreciate that. I really enjoyed the most wow, recent, appreciate it. the most recent episode with, uh, the Austrian economist who came on. Oh yeah. Was, that was a very, very fun recording. There's, there's a lot of symbiosis between that sort of view of the world, which I think is a sort of well-backed view of the world in terms of data and the <clears throat> promise of crypto. So I think that's it's an interesting place to start if someone has more of a libertarian leaning. It, interesting that you, you, you decided to use that word because the next place that I wanted to, to go real quick, just as a, for your audience as well, we, we did three recordings with a guy named Rob Viglioni. He's the head guy of Zencash, one of the one of our personal favorite cryptocurrencies. We did a Zencash 101 where we covered the basics of the project. And then we interviewed him, and it was just like unbelievably good. He came back and did a second interview because, for those of you that are that are very familiar with crypto, you might understand what a 51 percent attack was. The short version of that is uh, somebody was able to control enough of their hash power to win the democratic printing of the blocks. So hypothetical Bitcoin, if you had 51% of the hash power controlling Bitcoin's blockchain, you could then decide what gets written on the blockchain. So you can, what you can do with that is you can fake transactions. But Rob, they had a 51% attack with Zencash. And he, the way he describes the detail at which they were prepared for this, absolutely just, I had to listen to the recording like three times, even though... I'm that this close to the situation. Mm-hmm. This guy w- was one of the most intelligent people we've interviewed. And then the third time he came on, all the topic was was game theory. And if if you guys yeah. want to just understand more about that topic, it changed my perspective on so many things. He's such a brilliant guy. I think anybody that enjoys your content would also enjoy that. Yeah, I'm going <clears> to listen <throat> to that soon. I mean, I think game theory just explains a lot of the way the world works. And crypto is no exception. And a lot of the problems that crypto is trying to solve are well explained by game theory and how crypto can change the rules of the game to a degree. Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to that. I don't want to get... He describes himself as a libertarian anarchist. Yeah. But in the most respectful way. (laughs) (laughs) I fall somewhat into that camp, although... I feel like a lot of people do. Like, I never really knew it about myself, but when I listen to a guy as intelligent as him speak, I just agree with everything he says. So if it finds, I find the, the divide between the two sections absolutely mind-boggling. Well, I think this is part of, part of why poker players have an edge in this and many things, is that at a certain point, you have to follow the logic and the results. And I think that in a lot of ways, the sort of libertarian and more specifically like the Austrian economic view of the world is more data-oriented and, well, I was going to say results-oriented, but long-term, long sample, long sample. Sample size. Yeah. Anyway, in poker, we are, you can have whatever views you want, but there is a certain truth of the game that gets revealed over time. And if you're going to be in this game for the long run and you're going to be successful, you're going to have to conform to these truths. You can say, I want to call because fuck this guy. But there's an I've account- that more times than I'm proud of. There is an accountability in this game that comes from just like having direct financial results tied to decisions. And in a lot of other areas of life, you can have opinions and just make decisions that don't tie you to results the way poker does. And so. Yeah, what I, what I love about poker is that the best way to keep score is money. And that's everybody's favorite way of keeping score. So it's it's. That's why you get these guys that'll just come in and dump a bunch of money because they, they want to be a part of the action. They want to like be a part of the conversation. They want to be involved. Yeah. And so crypto is another place where in a lot of 
A lot of what crypto helps facilitate is putting your money where your mouth is. And it's a much easier way to trust someone if they're financially incentivized in the right way. It's not that no one is untrustworthy in those circumstances, but a lot of people are much less trustworthy when there's not a direct financial incentive. And so, you know, generally you can trust a poker player that's not like tilting super hard, that they're doing what they think is best. You can't always trust someone who isn't financially tied to that decision to be doing what they think is best. They might have ulterior motives. We see this in politics. We see that lack of accountability mm-hmm. manifesting itself in a lot of ways. I have, I have a great response to that. And one of the, if you listen to that, those conversations with Rob, they work with a company called Input Output Hong Kong. And IOHK, they, they've partnered with uh, Cardano, which is another one of our favorite um, crypto projects. So Input Output Hong Kong is basically a really high-end development team, software development. And they are working on, with, with Zencash and with Cardano, something that they're describing as liquid democracy. And every time this conversation comes up and we get to talk about it, I'm just so excited because... Think of it along these lines. Everybody that has a PokerStars account has a vote. And you can give your vote to anybody. And whoever gets the most votes becomes the like 20 PokerStars pros for the year, for example. And imagine at any time, anybody that got a vote for a player, they could take their vote away and give to somebody else. So... What this would create would be this like really interesting dynamic. And this might be a weird example. I was trying my best to stay poker related, but when you think of this more in politics, imagine if the president was able to get unelected at any point. If anybody had more votes than him at any point, you could change your vote daily if you felt like it. Whoever and and this could be like if you trust your local politician, everybody locally could give their votes to the local politician or the local spokesman or just your neighbor. You can give your vote to your neighbor if you trust his opinion and your neighbor could vote for both of you and your neighbor could take away both votes at the same time and give it to somebody else. That accountability and that like demand for what the people want is going to change so many things. I can't wait. Yeah. I mean, when you throw it in the political sphere, it, it becomes complicated for, I almost don't want to alienate any part of our audience by talking about it further. <laughs> but no I think problem. that that, uh, that concept, or just the sort of increased liquidity of something like a voting right, there's, I'm sure, many functions where that's going to be an important improvement to existing systems. Uh, and so I agree. I'm excited about you know the, the tokenization of a lot of things, and voting rights is something that I hadn't considered to the same degree. It's interesting if you think about selling those voting rights. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Versus just sort of gifting it to a trusted representative. But, well, even within crypto, what you see right now, and there'll be, let's say the particular project votes on 13 delegates, and those 13 delegates decide they're like the governors of this project. So they have to campaign, basically, within this community to earn the votes from the people. And, and there's a couple different ways they do that. A lot of them, and because those, those representatives, they get paid out of the, the proof of, of state concept. They get paid by being the validators of the blockchain, by being the proven things that are going to keep this thing together. They have the right to, to basically put their signatures and say, this block is correct. By doing that, they get a reward, a financial reward, usually in the token, in the, the token of the, Oh, the crypto project. Well, now a lot of those guys, they have to do things such as I will share 80% of my rewards with the people equally that give me their vote. So if they get 300 votes, there's a way that's pretty easy for them to say, like, once a day, this percentage gets divided equally between this, these accounts that are connected to mine. So then they have to, like, decide what the number is that they can offer. What other assets do they provide to the company or to like the people? You know, there's different ways to go about it. And it's creating really interesting, unique campaigns in these microcosm like societies. It's exciting stuff. So you guys can be found on iTunes, I know. Probably basically anywhere else that what I recommend the best place is the website, cryptobasicpodcast.com. It has our full episodes archive. It has some of the things we do, our portfolio contest. Um, I did a WSOP giveaway 
Uh, I gave away 1% of my main and then I proceeded to make day three dinner break and then semi-bubble. But we do a couple things on the website. That's what I generally recommend. But as far as uh, where the podcast is exactly, we are on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, pretty much anywhere that you can get your podcast. I'm sure we'll be there. We're also on YouTube, Crypto Basic. Uh, we put our Friday flagship, which is kind of like our weekly news show, up on YouTube as well. We record the videos. So cool. Um, if, if you're the type of person that enjoys a conversation with faces, I mean, we're not pretty, but it works. <laughs> and what's your next uh, tournament series? Uh, there's a circuit event in Coconut Creek in South Florida. I'm probably just going to head down to that. in a co- It's about a month away, a few weeks away. But I mostly do Florida stuff. I'll, I'll drive to any like 1Ks or higher and play cash mostly otherwise. Right. I mean, Florida is such an amazing place to play poker. I The, the people <clears> who listen <throat> to this podcast know because I think like – Probably about at least a third of the hands I've personally brought on the show are from Florida. I try. Oh, really? I live in the uh, in the Northeast now. I used to live in Ohio, but I have family in Florida, and so I visit as often as I can during the winter months to hang with family and then just to grind like the amazing scene. And then where where does your family live? They used to live in West Palm, and now they live in Boca. Oh, cool! And yeah, so, I lived in Boca for a couple of years. Yeah, so Boca's nice. It puts you right <clears> between <throat> the Seminole and also like uh, I love the. Palm Beach Kennel Club when they get five ten going, or they have that five tenth injury cap game, which is fun. But that game was amazing. I, I have personal beef with that room in particular, oh, but really? I'd rather not get yeah, into it. Well, I don't want to hear it because <laughs> I don't want to be. They have, they've been very nice to me for a long time. I'll just leave it at that. Okay, cool. But yeah, I uh, I missed this series that just happened. I was at the one earlier in this year, and the next time there's a WPT event in Florida, I will definitely be there. It's uh, they will have the Rock and Roll Poker Open over Thanksgiving weekend, which is usually a thirty five hundred with a large two million guarantee. Then the next relevant event will be in January. They'll have um, they usually run like a million dollar one k in January with a cool series, and then another thirty five hundred will be in April. That'll be a WPT. They, that's right. the WPT finale. They'll have the ten k, the fifteen k yearly WPT championship and a couple other cool things. All right, man. I'm excited for it. Uh, cool. Well, Hey, hit me up whenever you're in town. I'm all over the state. Uh, I'd love to get together, have, have a drink or water, whatever it is that you do. And nerd out, nerd out over up. some crypto and poker. I promise if you ever want to talk about anything and you want me back on, I'll do it. I, I just love rambling about poker. It's one of my passions. It's, it's <laughs> recording. fun. Anytime. Hit me up, buddy. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we really appreciate having you on.